I was sitting the uh, 2.30 meditation with you today before I went off to reflect on my talk. And I was really struck by how still and quiet it was in this room. I mean, it was, it was a little bit startling, actually, that it was so still, because that isn't usually what happens on the second day of a retreat. Uh, people, more of what's happening for people generally is a lot of uh, sleepiness and a lot of restlessness and you know, doubt and different kinds of difficult mind states. I didn't open my eyes. Maybe you were all asleep, and maybe that's why, <laughs> maybe that's why it was so quiet. <laughs> but I really just rested into the stillness because it was it was so so sweet, and I was really touched by how we really support each other in that. You know that the more quiet and the more still everyone becomes, that becomes a a support, a condition for all of us to become more still. And I just was uh, really touched because probably about a little bit more than two-thirds of you are on your very first residential retreat. And, and so, you know, it's, 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 not, it's usually uh, a little different than that when people are, are new to the uh, residential retreat. So I was able to just really drop into the stillness. The, the Buddha identified five difficult mind states that are usually very strong when we first come and sit down and look at our mind and sit in the posture. And he identified these mind states as what's called the hindrances, or what covers over or obscures our clarity, our, our uh, capacity to connect with our experience. And those five difficult mind states that usually people are sitting with, and I'm not saying that you probably weren't sitting with these at some point over these last couple of days, but it wasn't so apparent in that particular sitting. And these five mind states... Uh, the first one is, is, is desire or, or, or lusting after some kind of experience, wanting something to be happening other than what's happening. Or, or the opposite mind state or, or force in the mind, which is aversion, which is not liking what's happening and really wanting to push that away, feeling kind of irritated or anxious about what's happening. So the first one, the wanting energy. The, the second one, the, the not wanting energy. And the third state that the Buddha speaks about is, is tiredness or rest, uh, uh, tiredness or sleepiness or dullness, when the, when the energy really drops and we just kind of fall, we drift away and fall asleep. And then the opposite of that, which is when there's too much energy, which is restlessness, and worry, when the body is agitated and the mind is restless and agitated. And it's a quite an unpleasant state. That It's a very high, kind of more high energy state. And then the fifth one is doubt, uh, where we're really doubting our experience. We're doubting ourselves. It's self-doubt. 
We're doubting whether we can do this practice, whether this practice has any value, what am I doing here anyhow, I'm not getting anywhere, and I'm, you know, I'm never going to have any success in this practice, and there's all kinds of doubt that arises. And these, these are the, usually, and I'm sure that these are mind states that you recognize, because these are what we usually are confronted with when we first sit down. And so it isn't unusual. You know, you, oftentimes we will uh, make ourselves wrong or think we're doing something wrong because we're having these difficult states of mind. But it actually is often what we, just what we see. And then we learn in the practice how to overcome these. So maybe if if these different states were what was going on during the 2.30 sit, you weren't acting out of them. They weren't creating any uh, bodily action. Like you, for example, if you uh, really didn't want to be here in the meditation room and you really wanted to be outside in the cool air walking, you didn't get up and leave. (laughs) Like that desire for that didn't pull you out you were able to sit with it. Or say that you had a lot of uh, discomfort in the body, some pain, and you didn't like it, and you really didn't want it to be there, and you thought that you weren't able to meditate if that pain and discomfort was going to be there. Maybe if that was going on, it didn't seem to be causing a lot of extra restlessness or agitation that caused you to get up and uh, walk out these ways that we can act out from these forces of mind, or uh, the restlessness, sometimes very difficult to sit with it, and wanting to, again, just... Sometimes the energy is so strong, we just want to run away, just get away from it, start to move or, or run or, or somehow discharge that energy. So, so w- this is actually what we start to recognize, is that we can these patterns can be arising in the mind, these forces can be arising in the mind, but we don't have to do anything about it. We learn more and more the capacity to be able to sit still, even with this uh, uh, difficult, kind of more sometimes restless or dull energy in the mind, and we're able to just sit, even so, no matter what. We see more and more these states of mind more just as the landscape of our mind. It's just the, in the movie, in a way. It's the movie that's playing. But very much like when we're watching a movie, we just sit in the chair. We don't, we don't have to get up and start fighting with the characters or you know, you know, getting all uh, involved in the relationships or whatever is going on. We just sit there and we watch, we observe, we witness. And yet in this case, in some ways, we are the movie as well. <laughs> it's not like it's out there. You know, we feel impacted, we feel touched, we feel all of the impressions and the, and, uh, uh, the impact of what's going on, but we sit there. We sit there. And this is what we are learning how to do. This is what's called the untangling that Adrian was speaking about last night. Uh, untangling the tangle. 
you know, this tangle of our mind, this tangle that we find ourselves in that can be so unpleasant. It can feel like we're in a knot sometimes, you know, just tied up in a knot within our, our own mind and our stories and our emotions and our body and our reactions and our likes and our dislikes and, you know, all of our opinions and, you know, everything that's going on that, that it keeps us so busy with this engagement. But we sit or we walk without getting involved in all of the uh, entanglement without increasing, without adding on more tangles to the tangle, more knotting to the knots. So in this way, we're, we're not moving out from those patterns of mind. We're not moving out. We're not acting out. This is what we're trying to learn so that in a way we can see that these conditions of our mind and our body, they arise, they come, they appear, they stay for a little bit, and then they fall away, they disappear. We don't need to, if we can, we, if we can pause, if we can rest, things are happening on their own. In some ways, things can take care of themselves. Maybe we don't have to get as entangled as we think we do. In this way, we may find that we can, we can touch into a, a deep kind of rest, a deep kind of ease in ourselves when we start to just rest back into this stillness or this quiet or this, this, this uh, uh, posture of not doing so much. And then all these things can play out. I mean, perhaps you've seen this already. You know how these stories, as they come up, these memories or these plans or these ideas, these fantasies, they just come up and they grip us. You know, they want, our, uh, they want attention. And yet sometimes we can just, just say, okay, that's what's happening. Very gently come back to the breath, to the body, to the sounds. and We don't have to get so involved. Another metaphor is like finding our way out of the jungle, untangling the tangle, untying the knot, finding our way out of the jungle. And in some ways, we might say that the Buddha, the Buddha's wonderful insights into the nature of things, really is this map in a way. The Buddha gave us this map to find our way out of the jungle. Find our way out of this human predicament that we find ourselves in. And this map, these insights of the Buddha, are called the path of liberation, the path of freedom. And when we're talking about freedom, we're actually talking about being free of the grip of these forces of our mind. These, this, the, how, these, how we can feel our mind in some kind of a force field where we're just pulled into it. And we're pulled into it in such a way that then we start to speak from that force field, and sometimes in ways that are not so skillful or helpful or, or kind 
or our body starts to move in ways that are not so healthy or not so uh, skillful. So, so this force comes through our speech and our bodily actions. But when we sit here, maybe it's possible to see just the seed of that arising. We see the seed of the arising, whether it's something unskillful or unwholesome in the mind or whether it's something skillful or helpful in the mind. We could see it arising, but there's the possibility of not having to move with that. And we're, we're wanting to get some sense of how, of that strength, of that clarity, of that wisdom, where we're able just to ah, be here, just sit here, pause, stop, maybe even reflect, maybe even bring in some conscious reflection before the speech, before the action. And so this, this teaching, these wonderful insights of the Buddha, these what's called the Four Noble Truths, really is the whole of the Buddha's teachings. I want to speak somewhat about the Four Noble Truths. It's such a vast and profound teaching. We could talk about, I could talk about it. I could just talk about the Four Noble Truths for the rest of my life and probably not say too many things the same. It's so, it's so profound and so deep. But yet it also is simple in some ways, because it just points to this release. It points to the capacity to release this bondage, release this hold, kind of release this sense of being in a prison. Sometimes the metaphor also is the freedom that we experience is like walking out of the prison. Somebody opens the door. We've been imprisoned for a long time, and someone opens the door, and we just walk out. And can you, can you sense for a moment the feeling that that would give you if all of a sudden the door opened and you could just walk out and be free? Not confined, not trapped, not lost. And you walk out with clarity and insight and wisdom, strength. And you're free. This is what the Buddha was pointing to. But before we can find our way out, we really have to recognize that we're lost. And that's really something, you know, to finally say, you know, I'm really lost and I need help. I can't find my way. I'm really caught. I'm really trapped. And it's like when we finally acknowledge that, when we finally admit that to ourselves, then we can start to look to see where there's help, where there's a way out. When I was in my 20s, I had this experience of being not just unexperienced. I was very lost, very confused. And I really had no faith that there was a possibility of living with real happiness. I heard people speak about happiness and, you know, this, this promise of some contentment. I just could not even imagine myself or my life with any level of happiness. And yet I knew that I didn't want to live the way that I was living. And so I began my search. I began seeking and found my way to meditation. 
But if we don't really acknowledge this, we really just kind of go round and round and round. We find that you know that feeling, you know, just going round and round and round, like you're spinning your wheels. And this, uh, the, 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 in, in the Buddha's teachings, the word we have for this is samsara. This, this wheel, this wheel that we're on, the wheel of, of birth and death, being born and dying, born and dying. You know, even mo- every moment kind of being born as someone and then falling apart and being born as someone falling apart. All kinds of things get born and they, they fall away. And this, this wheel that we find ourselves again and again and again, it so, can feel so painful. My colleague Stephen Batchelor says that samsara is like being on a wheel in a hamster's cage. There is a sense of never having moved on we keep finding ourselves back at square one, a life of frustration. Sound familiar? <laughs> we know this. Because we have, even if we, even if we feel like we're free of it at times, we, it sometimes feels like a default position. Uh, we fall back into it. And then when we're back into it, we can't imagine how are we ever going to be free? How are we ever going to get out of this? And then there may be those moments again where we actually, the, the sunlight comes in the window and, and there's light again and we feel refreshed for, for whatever, something might happen. But then we kind of feel like we collapse back into it. And we can get sometimes a sense of running, like we're running or we're wanting or, or um, uh, this this searching and this anxiety that can come with it. And sometimes we can just feel like we're collapsed or we're, we've given up or we're lost. And then some energy may come up again and we're seeking something. And we can very much feel sometimes caught in this, this wheel. You know. So this is where these four noble truths are so exquisitely profound. This insight, these insight, four insights of the Buddha, which really were his first insights on his awake, upon his awakening in Bodhgaya in India, where I've spent a lot of time actually sitting under the Bodhi tree, the Bodhi, Bodhi, enlightenment, awakening. And the Buddha wandered, after his awakening, he wandered to this town called Sarnath, where he ran into his five buddies, who his, he had been practicing with early on, these five ascetics. And he wanted to give these teachings to them. And this teachings, his first sermon, is called the Dhammachaka Sutta. It means the, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. It's when the, this wheel, a different kind of wheel, started to turn. This wheel of coming out of bondage, the wheel of, that brings us out of this imprisonment, this entrapment into freedom. These four truths, four noble truths, they're noble because they uh, release us from our pain and our suffering. The first truth is that there is suffering in this life. The second one is that there is a cause 
of this suffering. The third one is that there is an end to this cause of suffering. And the fourth one is that there is a path to the end of this cause of suffering, this eightfold noble path, which is the path that we are walking even here. It's the path that we walk as practitioners, as people who make a a commitment to walking this path, the path to freedom. And I won't talk so much about this fourth uh, truth tonight um, because it's one we'll go into a little bit later on the retreat because it really is a very, uh, it has a a vast scope in itself and it's a very um, helpful path for us to understand as we go back into our daily life as well because it is the path that we walk. So for me, this this, this map, I call it a map because these Four Noble Truths are kind of a grid for me because they do give me a sense of direction. They do give me some sense of meaning for my life. Otherwise, it may, my life can feel kind of meaningless without some sense of understanding of what is actually going on here. Why am I in this predicament? Why do I find myself here? Why do I live in a world where there is so much suffering? Where there is so much pain? And in in the the Pali word is dukkha. You heard this word dukkha. It's a great word because it's the word that gets translated as suffering. But the word dukkha actually has a, you know, it resonates in some way. Dukkha. And it, it is, it's, suffering is sometimes a limited translation. It doesn't bring out the full meaning. Because dukkha can even mean unsatisfactory. Something's unsatisfactory. It means, dukkha means that something is incapable of satisfying. It's incapable of satisfying. Or it's incapable of truly fulfilling or making us happy. That thing, or that situation, or that person, or whatever it is that we put our hopes and our dreams in, is ultimately dukkha. It's dukkha. If we really think that that thing, or that situation, or that person is going to bring us that happiness that we've always been searching for, that's dukkha. Because it's misdirected. It's misguided because we're looking out. We're looking out. And true liberation, true freedom can only come from turning back, from coming back here, because everything that we're looking for is right here. This Tibetan saying from a Tibetan text, beneath the pauper's house there are inexhaustible treasures But the pauper never realizes this, and the treasures never say, I'm here. But it doesn't mean that they're not there. These inexhaustible treasures. The only way we're going to know that and to experience that is to come back home. Come back to the house and see what's truly here. 
So the first noble truth, what is this first noble truth? It said that birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, and death is suffering. Birth, aging, sickness, and death. This is the wheel that we find ourselves on. We're born, we get old, we get sick, and then we die. Is this all there is? (laughs) Is this what it's all about? (laughs) Nothing more. I mean, if we don't go further than this, this is what we're, this is what we go around with. We're born, we get old, we get sick, and then we die. It's kind of depressing. (laughs) Fortunately, if we come to a spiritual path, we start to recognize that there, this isn't all there is. We start to touch into something that is much more fulfilling and meaningful. It said that that union with what is displeasing is suffering, or dukkha. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. When I read that, I thought, you know, that's, that's... your retreat, I think. I'll read it again. <laughs> the union with what is displeasing. Have any of that? <laughs> Separation from what is pleasing and not getting what you want. Suffering, eh? Dukkha. And then there's dukkha dukkha. The pain of having a body, you know, this body that gets old and gets sick and dies, that's what bodies do. And then the sitting pains that come when, when we sit, have to sit for long periods or do anything, the pain, ah, the pain in the body, this decrepit old body that we have to carry around with us. Even when you're 20 years old, you're already in decline. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like, oh yeah, you're kind of, you know, 20 and you're going up to a peak. You're already going towards death. That's the way it is. And then there's a, the pain of our mind, having a mind, the pain of having a mind that's always restless. And that's what you see, right? It's always moving, it's always going, never really settling down. Even when you get quiet, it's just going a little bit in the back, you know, a little bit in the back, still going, not really stopping this restless mind. And all the fear, all the fear that we have, and the forces of, these, of the greed and the, the hate, all the hate that we feel, and the confusion that we feel, all this is dukkha dukkha. It's not just dukkha. <laughs> But the Buddha invited us to understand this. This is the first noble truth. Like This is the truth of, of dukkha. This is the way it is. We have a mind, we have a body, we're born, we get, we get old, we get sick, we die. This is how it is. And the Buddha said, don't avoid this. Don't deny it, but confront it directly so that you can understand it. And it's through the understanding that you begin to be free of it. You're not bound by it. You're not caught by it. So not to avoid, not to deny, not to pretend that this is not happening. 
this acknowledging, this, this recognition of, yes, this is true, because our tendency is want to push all this away. A friend of mine, let's see if I thought I had this here. Maybe I don't have this piece. Here it is. A friend of mine told this story, and uh, then it got printed in uh, uh, Sharon Salzberg's, one of the uh, uh, Insight Teachers' uh, books. It goes like this. Um, my friend's father, my friend who told the story, my friend's father was a young child during uh, driving with his own father in a car on December 7, 1941. A sudden announcement came over the car radio. The Japanese have attacked Pearl Harbor. Immediately, the father leaned over and said urgently to his son, don't tell your mother. When my friend heard this story from his father, he thought, Right. Maybe he hoped she wouldn't notice any of World War II. You know, and it's a little like that. Right? Don't, t- don't, like, don't tell. You know, we want to kind of keep it all under wraps. We don't want, you know, a- anyone to have to really feel or to know that there's really suffering in this world. And so we kind of, we kind of want to push it away. In a way, sometimes we might feel that this this dukkha is inconvenient. Right? It's in the way. And so we, there's ways we even try to manipulate or to control or, or to kind of make things happen so that we can push the suffering away, push it out of our consciousness. And it's not to say that surely we do things to help alleviate and try to uh, make ourselves and our loved ones Uh, live with more ease and happiness. We're talking about kind of a way of shutting down, suppressing, denying, pretending, so that we go unconscious with this truth. Or we try to escape, to run to something that's going to be more pleasurable. And this is what we see a lot within our own mind on retreat, how the mind just wants to find something more pleasurable, whether it's through the senses, something that might taste good or look good or nice sound or some nice feeling on our body, like, you know, going under the covers on our bed and kind of pulling the covers over and it feels so warm and, you know, or, or we see how we go through our thoughts into fantasies and sometimes even creating fantasies so that we don't have to really be here with the, the mundane dukkha of our experience. This kind of way we want to we run away. And Ajahn Chah, this wonderful uh, meditation, uh, Thai meditation master, says, to run from suffering is to run towards it. To run from suffering is to run towards it. And we start to really understand as we see, as we, as we look and pay attention to our own mind, we can start to see what's actually happening. This mechanism of perhaps of, of denying and avoiding and pretending and running and escaping. Because we'll feel 
the, the dukkha of that, we'll feel the way that we're actually cutting off from our experience and going unconscious, and that feels unpleasant and kind of painful when we're disconnected in that way from ourselves and from others and from reality. That's dukkha in itself. Or we'll blame others and we'll make it their fault. They should be different. It should be different. The situation should be different. Or we blame events, you know, the weather or the government (laughs) or, you know, we'll come up with all kinds of things in a way so we don't really have to take accountability. Or sometimes we'll blame ourselves. A lot of times we blame ourselves and we make ourselves wrong. We'll make our body wrong. We blame our body. We get angry at our body because our body isn't acting the way it should. Rather than just saying, ah, this is dukkha. This is dukkha dukkha. (laughs) And then just feeling it, sensing it, stopping, actually stopping. That's what we do with the meditation is we stop. And, and we've been talking, and, and Adrian's been talking about the body and, and coming into the body and the, the immediacy and the rawness of what's here with our mindfulness, with our attention. And when we do that, we can also see sometimes how much we can personalize all of this. Become so personal. It's like it's all about me, and something's wrong with me, and, and woe is me, and why am I suffering so much? And we can feel self pity, and, and like it's all my fault, and, or we can actually even sometimes feel some sense of entitlement like, well, I shouldn't be suffering. You know, why am I suffering? You know, look at who I am. You know, I'm successful and, you know, I have good things in my life and I have money and health. I shouldn't be suffering. But it's the first noble truth. There is suffering. And the more that we start to really acknowledge it, we see it's not so personal. We actually start to join the human race we start to recognize that to be human, to have a mind and a body, there are painful experiences. There's no way around it. So we open to this. We open to this truth. And when we're feeling it and we're sensing it and it's present, we, say, we can say, and our, one of our teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, says, suffering is like this. Dukkha is like this. Right now, it's like this. And we can feel it. And that's the way we start to come into contact with the truth, with reality. And we say, can I open to this? Can I open to this? Can my heart open to this? Can I be with things as they are? So we begin to understand, we begin to come into contact with this truth, this this noble truth of dukkha. And as we do that, the Buddha didn't stop there. The Buddha didn't say, that's it, get used to it. (laughs) This is second noble truth. He said, there is a cause for this dukkha to arise. And what is the cause? What is the cause? 
Now, the usual translation for this cause is desire or attachment. But the Pali word, this is a, there's a lot of confusion around this. This is where a lot of the teachings get very uh, confused unless, it's, unless one really looks very directly at the, the original text and what the Buddha actually taught. And the word, when the Buddha says, what is the cause of suffering? The word in Pali is tanha. It's this lovely word, tanha. And it's usually translated as craving or desire. But what it really means is, and it, it, it gives you much more of a sense of what this is, it, it, it's more, uh, the translation that's more accurate is a kind of thirst, like as in a dryness or drought. It's this kind of um, thirsty hunger for something, you know, or, or a drivenness or a compulsion or an addiction. It has a kind of feverish quality to it. It's not just a desire, like, you know, I desire chocolate ice cream. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. (laughs) (laughs) Power of suggestion. (laughs) You know, or, or, you know, I desire for my knee not to hurt. You know, it's not that kind of thing. We're talking of, when the Buddha speaks of the cause of this dukkha, He's talking about this heat or this um, fever that, that arises in the mind and it creates a kind of uh, trance-like unconsciousness you know, where, where we get fixated on the very thing that's going to end that dukkha. So, for example, I mean, something that arises in a, and, and um, Adrian mentioned this last night as well, when we're getting close to the end of a meditation and you're just like, oh, when is that bell going to ring? When is that bell going to ring? And sometimes that desire, that craving, can rise to such a feverish pitch that you're not very present. We're not present at all. It's just like all that matters is for that bell to ring. And the interesting thing is that then the bell rings, you get your desire, you know, that, that, that wish is fulfilled, the bell rings, and then it's like, ah. And so then what happens is we believe that it was the bell that brought you that relief. It was the bell that actually brought you that sense of satisfaction. But what actually happened was that that craving ended. The craving dropped away. That fever in the mind for wanting something dropped away. That relaxation came, which is why you can sit another five minutes or ten minutes, because now you're relaxed. It's when that the craving comes in the mind and we get so caught in that belief that it's that person or that job or the money or the, the body being in a particular uh, a condition or whatever it is, my meditation experience to be a certain way or whatever we get obsessive about. It's that obsessive mind. That's where we're going to feel the dukkha. 
And so what we're looking at, what the Buddha is pointing to, is looking, starting to examine the craving itself. Look at that force of craving itself. Turn your mindfulness, turn your attention, and see if you can actually feel and sense how that is running through your mind and through your body. The Buddha says, craving is the chief root of dukkha. It is craving which gives rise to ever-fresh rebirth, these new things that we grasp onto again and again, and bound up with pleasure, now here, now there, finds ever-fresh delight. It's always the next thing, right? Always the next thing. This is one of uh, our favorite uh, stories to read when we're talking about this force of uh, craving and tanha. Mala Nasruddin, who is this uh, kind of a crazy fool and, uh, and a, a master teacher. And Mala Nasruddin went to the market and saw a big bushel of hot chili peppers on sale. He bought them, returned home, and began to eat. A little while later, his disciples came and saw the mullah with tears streaming down his face, his mouth and tongue burning. Mullah, mullah, why do you keep eating them? And as he reached for another chili pepper, he replied, I keep waiting for a sweet one. (laughs) So we keep waiting for the sweet one. We keep kind of feeding ourselves with these different experiences of taste and and sights and smells and, 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 and sense pleasures of all kinds of degrees or going to different fantasies or plans or our great ideas or all these things that give us this kind of ever-fresh delight that the Buddha speaks about. Not really looking at the force that's moving in the mind itself. And when we look, we see that it's all about me, right? It's all about what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this? How is it going to make me feel better? It's such a narrowly constrained pattern of mind that when we're really caught in strong addiction and compulsion, we cannot see clearly at all. We're not connected with reality. We're just lost in this compulsion of our own mind. And it's this compulsion, it's this energy which propels us to seek outward, to seek for something, to possess to have, to, to, to take in because we believe it's going to bring the fulfillment. It's going to bring the sense of wholeness, the sense of completion. And that, oh, we can only believe that if we feel some sense of deficiency or incompleteness or emptiness within ourselves. And yet what's so kind of sad in a way, our predicament is a way, in a way, is that rarely do we actually look at the emptiness or the deficiency or the way that we feel unfulfilled and look at that rather than continually try to fill this hole, this un what's the word, it is this hole that can never really be filled with anything from the outside because that's going about it completely the wrong way. We can never do that. 
the treasures that we're looking for, that which is going to fulfill us, is already here. It's already here. We're already complete. We're already the Buddha. You know, we're already a manifestation of the divine. And we can only know that as we really start to investigate and turn back instead of continuing to be, be caught in our obsessive compulsions, which are born out of confusion and ignorance about the way things are. So we're really wanting to look at this energy, look at this energy that pulls us, that, that we actually can feel our body leaning out. We can feel this kind of grasping out of these different objects, whatever it is, food or experiences or the wanting of all these different kinds. Can we actually, with our attention, feel what's actually right here and not follow that? And that's why I was talking about that sitting at 2.30. Yeah, I don't know what was going on, but people (laughs) weren't following anything. (laughs) You know, maybe there was just a real sense of some deep fulfillment. And I'm sure that that was happening for many people as well. Just really drinking in the loveliness of the stillness and the quiet. So here on retreat, you know, we take away all of these different stimulations, you know. All the things that you usually are going to, to to satisfy yourself in some way. We take it all away here. And so it wouldn't be unusual if you were feeling some loneliness or aloneness or some kind of deprivation in some way. But this is a good thing. You know, we want, you know, that's how these retreats are set up, so that you are left with yourself. So that perhaps you begin to, to see and to understand how you don't need to go anywhere for your fulfillment, for your happiness, for your contentment. But just turning back here again and again and again, something begins to open. The Buddha says, in every direction, there are things you know and recognize. Leave them. Do not look to them for rest and relief. Do not let consciousness dwell on the products of existence, on things that come and go. Do not dwell on these products, these objects of existence, these things that come and go. And this brings us to the third noble truth, because what we are being asked is a radical letting go, a letting go of all those things that we have been clinging onto, all those things that we attach onto. To keep letting go, the third noble truth, there is an end to this cause of suffering. There's an end to this tanha. There's an end to this obsession, to this compulsion. And this is the cessation of this craving. It's the ending of this craving because we realize through wisdom and insight that it doesn't work. 
that continuing to reach out, continuing to hold on, continuing to attach ourselves to things to try to gain some sense of fulfillment doesn't work. And hopefully we come to that point in our lives where we see it. It doesn't work. And then perhaps we stop reaching out. And this is what happens through the wisdom and the insight we actually can't reach out in the same way. And I've seen that in my own experience. It's sort of like when I go to reach out for something, oh, it's really going to do it for me, and I, my hand just kind of falls. I go, the wisdom is, is too strong now. It's I can't deceive myself in the ways that I used to. Going into those fantasy worlds where I was really trying to create wonderful, pleasurable experiences through my mind, just falls apart. Doesn't give it to me like I thought it would. And so we we start to feel what's called in the teachings a kind of um, dispassion for those things. This passion changes to a kind of dispassion. But not a dispassion where we kind of just kind of go flat and become indifferent and go to sleep and become bored with life. But a dispassion from the reaching out is a turning back into ourselves where we feel then a different kind of passion. A passion for life, a passion for reality, a passion to know things as they truly are a passion to be engaged with reality, not our fantasies and our imaginations and our compulsions and our, uh, our confusion, but a passion for life. Sometimes it's called a disenchantment, a disenchantment for the way that I had known reality to be. And then I turn back. I turn back and I begin to be released from these forces of of greed and these forces of aversion and hate and these forces of confusion. And sometimes it can feel like I'm just falling backwards. Some one teacher said, like falling backward off of a high diving board. You know, just letting go, letting go. You don't even know what you're falling back into but something feels right and something feels released and something feels free because you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again that has brought you more pain and suffering. And this release from the greed and the hatred and the confusion turns and it uh, transmutes into these beautiful qualities of our being and our heart. And the greed turns into non-greed, which is a renunciation and a letting go. The hate or the aversion turns into non-hate. And this non-hate is a, is a, a, a way the heart opens in goodwill and love and compassion and care. And this confusion turns into non-confusion, which is wisdom and clarity, connection with 
the real with what's true. And then we start to feel a sense that there isn't actually so much to do. You know, we were so busy. (laughs) We're so busy with all of our strategies and all the things that we were engaged in to try to get this sense of some comfort or security or happiness. All of a sudden, we're just like, oh, hey, everything's actually not too bad. (laughs) Kind of a dropping in a dropping into just what's here. We see that there's really nothing that we need to hold on to. That when there's no clinging in the mind, then everything is naturally freed. Everything naturally just arises and passes, comes and goes. And we can rest more and more in this stillness, in this peace, in this ease. And from there, we have the wisdom and we have the compassion to know how to respond. It's not like we go kind of become a vegetable. We're in connection with life. We're in connection with reality. We're responding. We're engaged. We're awake. We're alive. And this is what brings great fulfillment, great satisfaction, great contentment, to truly be in the real, to be in the truth, which is the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the truth. The intelligence of the way things really are. We see with clarity and insight, vision, because we're here. There's nothing really obscuring, seeing more clearly. And it's not that this is a linear path. It's not like we start in agony and despair, and then we slowly climb out, and then one day we're free and liberated. Thank God it's not like that, because we might think, oh, well, you'll never get there. But what we actually find is that there's these moments where we sort of pierce through and we really feel free. And it's like just in an instant or in a moment, we could be really feeling a lot of pain and a lot of agony, and then all of a sudden, we're just released for a moment. And then it's like, ah, like the sun starts to shine and the air is cool and we're connected to the fresh breeze. And... We feel the burden kind of dropping off. and oh. We call these moments momentary freedom. And it's a taste of freedom. It's a taste of what the Buddha is pointing to. And these moments, these tastes, they give us, they give us a sense of faith and confidence and a sense of desire but a wholesome, a a good desire, like a desire that propels us towards more liberation, more insight, more practice, more freedom. And then we may, you know, fall back into our default again, but because there's more confidence and there's more insight and there's more understanding, we don't maybe get caught as long. We don't stay lost as long. 
we have some way to begin to climb out. We have these, this beautiful practice of mindfulness, which helps us return, helps us connect back, helps us have some access to this moment now in reality. And then this fourth noble truth, which I won't go into tonight. We'll do this later. But again, my colleague, Stephen Batchelor, who is also a teacher for me, he says, the person who enters such a path is one who aspires to a life no longer conditioned and dictated by the narrow demands of craving. This person who enters such a path is one who aspires to a life that is no longer conditioned and dictated by the narrow demands of craving. So this is the hope for us. Hope for us as human beings, is for our species, for our planet, for every one of us. Every one of us have the potential to recognize and wake up to our own Buddha nature, to our own divinity or our own liberation, whatever kind of words work for you around this. Each one of us is sitting on this this gold mine of treasures. All we have to do is take a look. So the Buddha says, I'll end with this, the Buddha says from one of his discourses from the Diganakaya, he says, put away all your hindrances. Let your mind pervade one quarter of the world with thoughts of metta, of loving kindness. And so to the second, and so to the third, and so to the fourth. And thus the whole wide world above, below, around, and everywhere equally She continues to pervade with a heart of loving kindness, abounding, abundant, sublime, beyond measure, measureless, free from hatred and free from ill will. Let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for your kind attention, your stillness. and Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.